You stand for the reading of God's word this morning from very long text from Philippians 4 verses 1 to 3. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that your word from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is all inspired, all true, all good and profitable for teaching and rebuking and our edification. Thank you that, it, Lord, we, we, we do not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from your mouth. So, Lord, would you speak to us now through your word? Would you sustain us and build us up as your church and the truth of your word that we may be increasingly be pointed to your son, Jesus Christ, through the preaching of your word? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me see it in. I don't think there's anyone that's sitting here this morning who has not been hurt at all by someone else. We've all had, most of us, I'm sure, have had false accusations brought against us. People have spoken hurtful and damaging words to us. We've been possibly betrayed by a close friend, uh, promises have, have not been kept in a relationship, and perhaps all these things have, have led to a complete breakdown in, in, in a relationship. And unfortunately, this is life. This is the, the, the reality of the, the sin-cursed world that we, we find ourselves in. Um, broken relationships, unfortunately, are bad fruit of the, of the fall. And because we all sinners, we, we all contribute to this, unfortunately. But the question remains is, what happens when there is a relational breakdown in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ? How do we deal with this? That's a very practical text this morning. Um, but we must also remember that uh, relational Breakdowns in the church are nothing new. They've been a part of things right from day one. In fact, if you remember, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, you know that even the, the great apostle Paul himself, the author of, of this text, had a significant fallout with, with a fellow brother in Christ, Barnabas, okay, because of John Mark, and that's in, in Acts 13. And then we see here in our passage this morning, two ladies in the Philippian church, Euodia and Syntyche, their names have been preserved for all eternity, uh, showing that they had a fallout in, in the church. So how then are we to deal with relational breakdowns, specifically amongst believers? 
And so what we're going to see from this text this morning is that because we've been reconciled to Christ, because our names, in fact, have been written in the, the book of life, we actually have no option but to be reconciled. So just two points this morning. First of all, stand firm in the Lord. And secondly, reconcile in the Lord. So first off, stand firm in the Lord from verse 1. Now, over these past few weeks that we've been working through the epistle to the Philippians, what we've been uh, presented with are these majestic gospel truths, right from chapter 1 through to chapter 3. Remember, we finished off the end of chapter 3 two weeks ago. And so what we've seen in these sweep of scriptures, in these three chapters, is we've seen that the Lord Jesus Christ, as Philippians chapter 2, um, uh, God himself, though he humbled himself and took on flesh and he died on the cross for our sins, but yet the, the Lord raised him up on the third day, um, raised him from the dead and exalted him on high, giving him the name that is above all names. And so trusting in this Lord Jesus Christ, truly God, truly man, and his work on, on the cross for us, we receive this gift of, of undeserved grace, the forgiveness of our sins and, and his righteousness that's counted to us. Okay, more or less, that, that, that's the gospel that's been presented, um, very broadly speaking, from chapter 1 to, to chapter 3. But now we reach the beginning of, of chapter 4, and there's a, a change in gear. And that change in gear is marked in, in the first word that's used here, therefore. Okay, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and I long for, my crown, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So that therefore is significant, because what, what is it saying? It's saying, well, I, Paul's explained. You know, prior to these verses, in the first three chapters, he explained what God has done for us in Christ. He's faithfully presented the gospel in the first three chapters. And now, in the light of that, okay, now he's going to instruct us on how to live in the light of the gospel. So in other words, we've got a, God, Paul has, has presented to us the indicative of the gospel, what God has already done for us. Now he's going to present the imperative, how to live, what you must do in the light of the gospel. So there, that's why we, it starts off with a therefore. So it's gonna, he's going to give us specific instruction how we should live our lives in the light of the gospel. So he addresses the Philippian church, which we must remember, if you remember from the, the first sermon of Philippians, it was an entirely Gentile church. Okay, there were some churches like the, the, the Roman church, which was a mixed bag of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Not so with the Philippian church, entirely Gentile church. And interestingly, Paul calls the gent these Gentile Christians, he calls them what? He calls them his brothers. Okay, the Greek word there is adelphoi, and you know, just to, for politically correct sensitivities and all that, adelphoi includes sisters too. <laughs> okay, that is the meaning of the word, so it's not being gender exclusivist. Even the English, brethren, it implies ladies as well. We have to state that these days. It's not always assumed. So he's, in, he's speaking to the whole church. Okay. 
Now, you can just quickly read over that, yeah, my brothers, and carry on. But actually, we need to pause here and say, well, that, this is significant. Why is it significant that Paul is calling these, this Gentile church his brothers? Well, not so long ago, Paul would have never been able to call a bunch of Gentiles his brothers. Because the observant Jews of the day weren't allowed to associate with Gentiles. They weren't even allowed to share a meal together or even enter their household. It would have made them ritually unclean. And now Paul, who we saw in the previous chapter, is a Jew of Jews. Okay, he's listed as impeccable Jewish credentials, which we know he's in the light of Christ. He's not really bothered about those anymore. He now calls these Gentiles his brothers. Okay, in other words, what do we mean by a brother? Well, your own blood relative. Well, how come, how is it possible then that this change has taken place? It's a significant change. Well, what has changed is that the gospel's at work. Okay, Christ has broken down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile by his blood shed on the cross and has reconciled believing Jew and Gentile in peace. That's what Philippians 2.14 tells us. And it's later what Ephesians, so Ephesians 2.14, say. Um, and then later in Ephesians, Ephesians 3.6 calls this the mystery of the gospel. Okay, the mystery of the gospel is that now in Christ, through this promised Messiah, the Gentiles are now included in God's covenant promise of salvation. That we have been made one people with Israel. We've been made one body. We now are the, the, the one new Israel of God. Both believing Jew and Gentile. We are fellow citizens of the household of God. As Philippians 3.20 told us in the previous weeks. And so the implication of this truth, of the mystery of the gospel is as Galatians 3, 28 to 29 declares. It says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offsprings, offspring, heirs according to promise. So the truth that is getting at you is that in Christ... All racial, all ethnic, linguistic, cultural barriers, even divisions between um, people groups, all animosities, all that stuff falls away. Now, it's not a denial of the reality of our distinct cultures or the, 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 uh, the reality of distinct sexes, male and female. It's not doing away with those at all. It's, we celebrate the good things in, in our cultures and um, our maleness and our femaleness. Those distinctions are God-given. But we must understand that our identity in Christ infinitely surpasses our cultural identity. And we see this here with Paul. Okay, we must remember that we are firstly citizens of heaven. 
The fact that we are South African is by the by, frankly. We're proudly South African, for sure, but what's more important is that we're Christians. And we see this especially here with Paul. Now in Christ, Paul shares a closer bond with these Gentile believers than his own unbelieving Jews who are his own flesh and blood. And it's the same with us. Yeah, though we here, yeah, sitting right now, here, yeah, we're from all different sorts of backgrounds, different ages, different cultural heritages. Yeah, some of us speak different languages at home. We got different interests. We support different sport teams. We maybe support different political parties. But we all united to Christ. And we share a much deeper bond than we share even with some of our our unbelieving blood relatives. So because we've been adopted as God's own children through Christ, now we are part of the same family, the family of God. And this family, the unique thing about this family is that it endures to eternity. Hey, that's why we call ourselves brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're going to still be brothers and sisters in Christ in the new creation. So the truth of this reality is then expressed by Paul in, in the next phrase in verse 1. He says, my brothers whom I love and long for. Uh, it should be, that's how the ESV's got it, better translated directly from the Greek as my brothers beloved and desired. Yeah, it's a bit more stronger. So Paul is expressing a deep love, a deep affection for um, his, his fellow uh, brothers in, in Christ. And this affection for each other in, in Christ's body, it's the natural outworking of our own union with Christ. Yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to, to hate or to bear animosity toward blood relatives, although unfortunately sometimes it happens. Yeah, but usually in a family conflict, we try our best to patch things up because we know, hang, we've got to live with each other for the rest of our lives. So, you know, sort yourself out. How much more then should this be with the family of God? And in fact, our love for each other is precisely how we know that we are disciples of Christ. That's why Jesus himself says in John 13, 35, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul's demonstrating that for us here in in this text. The next phrase that he uses is my joy and my crown. It's clear here that Paul prizes his fellow brothers and sisters in in the Philippian church. They are his joy, they are his Delight, and he's describing here the beauty of Christian fellowship. It's this unique and, and a special bond that only those of us in Christ enjoy with each other, because it's a bond that is going to endure through through all eternity. It's magnificent. And then he calls the Philippian church his crown. Now you remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter three, Paul used imagery of um, an Olympic race in our salvation. 
Okay, he's using the same imagery here of the crown. Okay, you can also translate the, the, the word in the Greek to, to be a wreath that would have been given to you if you, if you won the race in, in, the, in the ancient Greek Olympics. Now, we saw it in chapter 314 that Jesus is the ultimate prize for, for completing the race of, of our salvation. But we see here that the goal of our race is not just Godward. It's not just Jesus and me. Okay, as important as that is, that's not the entirety of, of our, how we to see our Christian life. The goal, the prize, the crown for Paul is also the upbuilding and the unity and the health and the redemption of Jesus' church. So he's saying that the church matters. It's not, we can't just exist and have a Jesus and me and exist as Christians in isolation from the church. To be a Christian means that you are members of Christ's body. Then the verse ends with, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in the light of this beautiful and and God-given community, this bond of of, of, of brotherhood in Christ's church, Paul's saying, well, guard it. Okay, Paul exhorts the Philippians to, to guard themselves against the things that threaten their bonds of unity. And what is threatening their bonds of unity? Well, if you remember from chapter 3, this is the context of this text. What was the church dealing with? They were dealing with false teaching. They were dealing with people bringing false gospels into the church. First of all, the Judaizers, those guys who were saying, no, you've got to obey the whole Jewish law in order to be saved. The legalists. And then secondly, called the antinomians or the prosperity gospel folks saying, oh, no. You know, we've already been resurrected from the dead, so it doesn't matter how we live, and we can have heaven on earth here now and be rich and health, wealth, and happiness. And Paul called out both those teachings as heresies. And so he's saying, God against, God the church against those heresies. And how do we do that? How do we stand against those who would threaten our unity? Well, The verse says, stand firm in the Lord. We are to find our unity and strength as Christ's church, not in earthly things. Okay, we don't primarily find our unity as Christians through supporting the same political party. Nor do we find our unity as Christians through all adopting a similar cultural norm or speaking the same language or supporting the same sports teams. Okay, not that anything, all, any of those things are inherently wrong, but that's not how we find our unity. Okay, we're not a, a country club that, that would find its unity in a number of those things. But for believers in Christ, for us, true unity is found only in belief in God's truth, in the true gospel, in the word of God and the Lord Himself. In our catechism question this week in, in the worship guide, it put quoted it, some of it here. It's from the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. 
question and answer 54, which essentially says that it is the true faith which unites us. You see, what it's telling us here is that we cannot have unity with apostates and false teachers and false churches. If you ever find yourself in a church that is preaching a false gospel, that is deviating from historic biblical orthodoxy, you're frankly conscience-bound to leave that church. Okay, it's a false church. Okay, light cannot have fellowship with darkness. We can't have unity for the sake of unity. Our unity is rooted on, on only something objective and it's rooted in the word of God, the truth of God, the rule of faith, historic biblical orthodoxy, which is expressed in the historic creeds and confessions of the church, like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Okay, all these things preserve biblical truth that has been taught by the Church of Christ for 2,000 years. So we find immense security in the truth of the gospel that salvation belongs to the Lord. This is now digging down into the nature of this truth, the nature of the gospel in which we found our unity. And the nature of this truth is that well, our salvation is the work of God from beginning to end, as we saw in 1 Philippians, as Philippians 1 verse 6 promises, that he, that he will complete the work that he began in us at the day of Jesus Christ. That he counts us righteous, not because of our own good works, but purely, solely because of the righteousness of, that comes from God through faith in Christ, as we saw in Philippians 3 verse 9. And then we left with this other great comfort from Philippians 3.20, that our citizenship is in heaven. So despite everything in this evil, current evil age, the struggles with sin, the tragedies of life, the assaults of the enemy, his schemes to divide the church and cause rifts between us, God's promise to us, his little flock, his little remnant, is that he will hold us fast. And because he is faithful, we can stand firm in him. So let's bring us to our second and last point. They reconcile in the Lord. So what Paul has done for us in, in this first verse is that he's painted the ideal of the Christian community. Okay, so which we are to, to aspire. But in these next two verses, he describes a real situation that has unfolded in the Philippian church. So I read from verses 2 and 3. I treat Euodia and I treat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul identifies two ladies in the church, Euodia and Syntyche, and he appeals to them to reconcile. So who were these two ladies? Well, this is the first and the only time which they are mentioned in the New Testament. And what's clear from especially verse 3 here is that they were 
heavily involved in ministry in the Philippian church. In fact, they even ministered alongside Paul. The text says they labored side by side with me in the gospel. So there's clear evidence that that women were certainly involved in church ministry in the early church. And there's plenty of evidence in the New Testament for this. Lydia in Acts 16, Priscilla in Acts 18, Phoebe in in Romans 16, amongst others. So it's, it's good for women to serve in the church. But we must not then make unbiblical assumptions from, from this fact and then jump to the conclusion, well, then that there were women apostles and women pastors and women elders. Okay, ordained office is reserved strictly for biblically qualified men. And that is what is taught consistently in the New Testament, most notably 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7 and Titus 1, 5 to 9. So Paul has obviously heard that there's some issue that has led to the breakdown of the relationship between these these women. We don't know exactly what happened or the nature of the issue. We just know that there's a broken relationship here. So how does he address it? Well, he pleads with them. Verse 2. Notice the language that's used there, the Greek word parakalo, it it means to plead. He doesn't command them or pull a rank, his apostolic authority, and pull a rank and say, thou shalt sort this out. But he appeals to them in love. As As the ESV translates, to agree. Now, so this is not the best translation of, of, of that Greek word, probably better to translate it as something like reconcile um, or to be restored in, in a harmonious relationship. Now, even though it, it, it's far from ideal, you can get away with a messy relationship at work. Now, you can have a, a disagreement with, with a friend and Walk away from that friendship if it's not working for you. And even in family, I mean, it's possible just to give up and say, ah, no, I'm not going to talk to them again. But you can't get away with a broken relationship in the church. Because the reality is that we, because we're all sinners, we are most probably going to experience relational difficulties at some point in our lives with brothers and sisters in Christ. But we are bound to work through these difficulties and resolve them and reconcile. Why do we say this? Why is this such a fundamental thing for Christian community? Well, can't we just get away with avoiding those people at church or you know, if, if that's too uncomfortable we just leave the church, find another church far away from those pesky people no yeah, the only biblical reason you should leave a church is if they start to preach heresy if you don't find the marks of the church there, it's not a good idea to leave a church because of relational issues Okay, we can't walk away from 
messy relationships in the church because it's a gospel issue. Yeah, it's a core issue. This is where the rubber hits the road. If we're unwilling to forgive someone who has offended us, who has caused us a lot of harm, even if we think we're completely in the right, what that reveals is that the gospel has not quite yet taken root in all of our hearts. Because forgiven people forgive. And if we've grasped the weight of our own sin, that indeed we are our lawbreakers, we deserve God's wrath for our iniquity, but because of his sheer undeserved grace, he forgave our sins in Christ. Well, you'll be compelled from your heart to extend the grace that you have received to others. You'll be compelled to forgive others. You see, what the truth of the gospel also does in us is that it also gives us an awareness in some sense that, well, we've also contributed in some way to this situation. Okay, there's none of us in any messy relational situation that can say, no, I'm completely innocent. Why? Well, we're all sinners. In some way, we have contributed to this mess. And so we understood the gospel. Well, it's very hard then to kind of sit up on our perch and say, I I don't know, I'm completely self-righteous. Because if we have grasped the depths of our sin, we can't do that. Because we will have to acknowledge, no, I'm, I'm also a sinner. I've also got some brokenness that has contributed to this. It's going to lead us to approach the situation with, with some kind of humility. And you notice here in the text, Paul doesn't pick a side between Yodia and Syntyche. Because perhaps in, in a sense he, he, he understands that they've both contributed in some way to, to the issue. So while it it may not be easy, the best way, and this is wisdom from God's word, the best way that we try to solve a conflict is to admit straight up your own faults and sins before the person. Because what that is typically is going to do is going to open up the door. It's going to free the other person to, to do the same. It may not, okay, and that's sad. But at least you have put it out there yourself. But typically, approaching with with, with humility and admitting your own faults typically is going to lead to the reconciliation. Brothers and sisters, don't let bitterness and unforgiveness take root in your hearts and in your relationships. And with fellow believers especially, sort things out. That's why Ephesians 4.15 says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So dealing with this stuff actually is a part of our sanctification. But we've got to be able to, to love each other enough to graciously speak 
the truth, even when it is difficult. And it's only when we lovingly speak truth to one another that forgiveness and reconciliation become more possible. You can't have peace without the truth. Otherwise, it's just a fake peace. It's easy to run from a messy relationship. But as we've been saying, in Christ, we are prevented from doing so. How come? Well, there are two reasons right here in verse 3. Let's look at them. First reason. The Christian life doesn't happen in isolation. Okay, as said before, there's no option for us to be a Christian in our bedroom. Okay, and, and not in communion with the rest of the church. It's a, it's a fundamental contradiction in terms. We've been saved into Christ's church. And the reason for that, as messy as life can be in the church, God uses these things for our sanctification. He uses uncomfortable people to rub off the hard edges in us. That's the, <laughs> that's the point. <laughs> so we've been redeemed into Christ's church, and this is the emphasis of, of verse 3. It's even more apparent in the Greek, which uses a, 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 a prefix, sun, which is communicating the, the togetherness of uh, um, the word. It's, so you can see the togetherness of the fellowship. A phrase like they labored side by side. Okay, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. So in God's providence, he's placed us in this specific church community for a reason. To do life together, to serve each other, and therefore to forgive and reconcile each other. Second thing we see in verse 3, and it's this last phrase, says, whose names are in the book of life. Whose names are in the book of life? Paul's name is in the book of life. Euodia's name is in the book of life. Sintike's name is in the book of life. Clement's name is there. Timothy's name. Epaphroditus' name. All of God's elect in Philippi. In fact, all of God's elect throughout history. Well, so what? Well, if the name of your brother with whom you have fallen out is also written in the book of life, who is one of God's elect, who is a fellow citizen of heaven, well, you better be reconciled with him now. Because news is that you've got a whole eternity together ahead of you. So this puts things in perspective. Yeah, you, you may think that the issue that you have with someone else is irresolvable. Certainly may be challenging. But dang, if you know you're going to spend the rest of eternity together, being in God's presence, worshiping him forever, surely that issue has got to shrink in comparison to that glorious promise. Let's bring it to an end here. Now, we have no doubt experienced the heartbreak of pain and broken relationships, and this can often leave us in, in despair and, and brokenness and hopelessness. And it, it's even more tragic when this happens within the, the body of Christ. But as we've seen, as believers in Christ, we are compelled to reconcile 
with each other as it's rooted in the gospel itself. That's why 2 Corinthians 5, 18 to 19 says, All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us, the message of reconciliation. You see, though, at one time we were all in our sins. We were all cut off from God. We were all deserving of his wrath. In Christ, God reconciled us to him. Yeah, because Christ himself took the penalty of our trespasses on the cross, because he paid our debt, our sins no longer are counted against us and instead we get we receive what we we don't deserve and that is forgiveness of our sins grace and peace with god or eternal reconciliation with him the thing is christ has not only reconciled us to god but he's also reconciled us to each other if you have received this gracious gift from God, if you've been reconciled to him, God has entrusted you with the same gospel message of reconciliation. Just as your debts have been cleared, we've been freed to clear the debts of others in our lives. That's why Ephesians 4, 32 says, Forgive one another as God in Christ forgave you. So church, repent and trust in Jesus Christ, the only one who has reconciled you to God because he's paid the debt of your sin. And receive this free gift of the forgiveness of your sins. And know that because he's, he's reconciled you to the Father, he has reconciled you to your brother too. Know that you are a citizen of heaven. That your name is written in the book of life. Where one day when he returns, we will be with him. His church, his bride, and he, our bridegroom, with us forever. Amen.